Hello and welcome to The Entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio, the show all about inspiring people, innovative companies and fresh ideas in global business. I'm Tom Edwards. On today's episode, we're turning our sights to Finland and meeting two founders looking to expand internationally while staying deeply committed to their local roots and values. One is a distiller. No matter how much we would even like to sacrifice of our authenticity or quality of ingredients in the great altar of getting more profit per product, we will still lose out to the big guys. While the other took inspiration from the challenges posed by the Fukushima disaster to start a natural household cleaning products and cosmetics company using all natural ingredients. I started to think about the chemicals that we have at our home and how our three children were exposed to chemicals. This is The Entrepreneurs, with me, Tom Edwards. You're listening to a special Finland-focused edition of The Entrepreneurs. Mika Lippeinen is the co-founder of Kura, an award-winning all-rye distillery. Mika and four of his friends started the business in 2012 in the proper Finnish fashion in the sauna. Since then, Gora has been tapping new markets, including here in the UK, and growing into a truly global brand. It's also become the first ever rye whiskey to win a Great Taste three-star award. Mika stopped by Midori House on a recent trip to London to tell us more about the brand's uncompromising commitment to authenticity and how Gora captures the very essence of Finland thanks to their staple ingredient. We've been a meat, potatoes and vodka country for a long, long time and a young culinary culture, I would say, in general. So hence, I would say that whiskey and gin like we do is is a new thing. But for us, the approach was to think about what is our nature, what is our soil, and what do we, what do we eat, what taste do we know. And rye is the thing that we Finns know the best. So we grow up on rye bread, rye porridge, rye everything, And then we were wondering, like, why has our culture of distilling and drinking just factored apart of of the whole tradition of tasting rye? And we we thought that we want to bring these two things together. And rye whiskey seemed like a natural vehicle for that. And it all makes perfectly good sense when you explain it so elegantly. But (laughs) what happens then? This always intrigues me when, okay, you hit that point, you're in agreement, you're in accord what you're going to do. Then what? How do you start the process? And anybody who knows anything about the dark arts of distilling mm. will know it always sounds a lot more straightforward than it is. How do you go about reflecting those considerations, interests, tastes, that heritage? How do you go about making a product that, that does that? Yeah, well, we, we started out by Googling how to make gin. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I'm not even kidding. So none of us were from the industry of distilling or, or brewing per se. Our head distiller, Kalle, he, he had a big tradition of home brewing and is a biologist. So he had this sort of the organic processes down pat. But as you know, like the technical process of producing something is so much just a one thing in the whole grand scheme of things. So we had to go on uh, almost like a Rocky movie-esque training montage to <laughs> phone up everybody, like phone up distilleries in Europe and US and wherever to like, can we come and work for the weekend, come and work through our holidays just for free, uh, just to learn. And uh, we started this 2012 
And we ended up starting distilling operations in 2014 after a long period of this whole search. And again, other connoisseurs will know, even once you've acquired the knowledge and you've got the product and it's there in the barrels, then it's a bit like, well, now what? Yeah. It's, you've just got to sit. <laughs> you've got to sit and wait. So I know you then started to produce gin. It, yes. It, was that essentially because you kind of had time to kill while you were waiting? That's one thing. But we also like, since for us, it's such an integral part of what we do that everything has to come down and boil down to the original idea, the values, the surroundings, not only the soil, but the community where things are made. So we thought about like what else we can do from rye. We can't do, obviously, your rums or tequilas or whatever, because, you know, you, you don't grow those things in Finland. And we wanted to focus only on being great at distilling rye. So gin, we can make the gin spirit out of rye. And in Finland, we have this thing called every person's right, where you can go to your neighbor's land, the government's land, a private company's land, and pick anything that grows wild. So we thought, like, okay, let's go and pick up berries, botanicals, everything else, macerate them, distill them, see what turns up. And we we ended up with really, really good level gin. And tell me how difficult it becomes to keep that local mindset and Mm. to keep that degree of kind of hands-on detail once you start to have something that's quite successful, because presumably there's pressure to try and scale and meet demand. I think if people just even browse on your site, you know, lots of stuff is not available because people want it so so much. Does that become a tension then, Mika, to balance the commitment to that locality and that it's kind of a small way of thinking in a way with the pressures that are attendant once you start to be successful it is a difficult and there is that tension i think if you just chase after quite brutal things like profit margins you'll end up sacrificing a lot really quickly but we also figured out that no matter how much we would even like to sacrifice of our authenticity or quality of ingredients in the great altar of getting more profit per product, we figured that we will still lose out to the big guys. It's not a road we can go down and win. Mm-hmm. So so we figured that we just have to double down and we have to expand at Isokura, Finland, all of its 4,500 inhabitants cheering for us. And, and you know, our distillery brings in 18,000 visitors a year to that small village. So, so it's starting to be a big thing. Like we're still a small company, but there it's a big thing. So we actually think this where, you know, we try to scale up there and go through all the pains that go with that operation. And that allows us to maintain our honesty and integrity when we go out to London, for instance, and tell people about it. And what about those big players? Do they do they sniff around? Are they a bit <laughs> sniffy? What do they make of you guys? Or is it that thing where because you're small mm. enough, it's not a threat, as you say, yeah. they can be quite personable and agreeable what are they like Uh, they're a bit sniffy and also our industries is is, uh, difficult in a couple of senses well all industries have their things but for us it's alcohol is a thing that raises passions in in many ways so governments want to regulate it they want to regulate the marketing they want to regulate the taxation and uh, the taxation is largely like a fiscal plug gap for a lot of governments in the world so like the alcohol taxes keep going up 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 And that means that the big players have a lot of advantages where they just gum up the market. And you go to a bar as a consumer and you see 100 bottles on the back bar 
And you might not realize that 70% of those are just actually one company, although there's multiple, multiple brands. So it's not a simple market out there for a small independent like we are, but we're, we're getting by. Well, yeah, and talk to me a little bit about what that process looks like. Obviously, you're well, you're here in London yeah. because of different craft events that are, celebrate the arts of distilleries and of, of brewing, microbrewing, independent brewing. Is that still the best forum or do you find it's about meeting consumers? Is there some magic ingredient that you mm. tend to rely on? What does that process of education look like? Well, there's no silver bullet in getting your brand out there. You just need to walk the miles. And especially with whiskey, where you first have to wait for it to mature. And then you get it out there. And then you have to ask people, like, do you like it? Like, what's it like to drink? And and suggest, how about trying it in an old-fashioned or Manhattan or whatever. So, like, breaking those old norms of whiskey. And events where you meet people, okay, any occasion where you can meet your customer is a good one for us. Mm-hmm. And then obviously, like, then you have to start thinking about how does this scale? And I won't say we're there yet. We're very much still working on it, but the start has been good. Well, yeah. And again, I don't like to always look back to 2020 and talk about the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I know, again, there were big pivots and yeah. you start producing <laughs> hand sanitizer instead. Yeah. But how did that threaten to really derail the, the project? Or by that point, did you feel that the foundation was sturdy enough that you could navigate that relatively yeah. easily? We were fortunate enough to have enough of a brand out there to be able to do that and it was like a wild ride we started making hand sanitizer we thought it would be more for local support keep the lights on keep the local hospital the police and everybody you know stocked up with hand sanitizer because like we were running out and it ended up being like a massive business for six months and then we ran it down and we got back to making whiskey and gin and everybody was just so tired. <laughs> it's a, Making those pivots, I mean, even when they're successful, they do take it out of you. Mm-hmm. And I would say that nobody working in food and drink or hospitality, now with the cost of living crisis, it's been quite a three-year stint. Do you think that changed irreversibly your approach to doing business even the original friends and then other other stakeholders in the process because you had to review what you cared most about you had to start thinking about the well-being not just of your founding crew but of everybody involved in the process everyone in the in the community do you think it's changed forever and for the better it's definitely changed about the quality of the change, I don't know since the crisis was so existential in 2020. You had to do what you had to do to basically just survive, keep the lights on. But nowadays, I would say, and I wouldn't call this being jaded about the industry, but we really think that craft is dead. Craft is dead as a business. The things that were originally great about calling something craft, about the actual craftsmanship of the quality of making, of the quality of ingredients, that still lives. But craft as a business is dead. And I think past 2020, anybody and everybody who hasn't made out their thing, their thing of passion, whatever it like, whether it's coffee, chocolate, spirits, whatever, if you don't have something that really speaks to your fans, your consumers, your potential consumers out there who might enjoy a great drink of Finnish rye whiskey. If you don't have that consumer brand set up, then it's not going to go well, I think, this year or next. Quite philosophical. Yeah. It's yeah, time to take a moment uh, to really uh, drink that in. Yeah, I mean, enough, it's but... early a.m., so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You're too early in the day. We, we, we might, need some, might need a couple of sharpness yeah. in a minute just to get us through. Let's change pace a bit, Miguel. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about 
because we were talking about that moment. You've got yeah. the stuff in barrels. You're playing the waiting game. Yeah. I'm sure you've been asked a million times, and I apologise for repeating the question, but tell me about that moment when you're like, right, let's see what we've got here. Let's stand around. Let's gather. Let's take that first sip. Tell me a bit about what that was like. I think there's two distinct points of time which I remember really well. One was when we were just starting to try out. So not to get too technical, but in the U.S., if you call something rye whiskey, it means it has to be 51% rye and the rest can be corn or wheat or whatever. In our production, we, we started off with the simple idea. Everything is rye all the way down, all the way up, 100% rye despite it being really hard to make and distill, no compromises, everything's rye. And we figured out that in order for us to have a rye whiskey out there that a Finn can taste who has grown up on eating rye bread and still notice immediately that this is the taste of rye, that's how it's got to be. But we were very nervous about like whether anybody else is going to accept that. And I went around the whiskey show here in London I sneaked my own bottle in, poured the show glass in the bathroom full of our new make, so the whiskey distilled at zero days old, and started going around every booth and saying, you know, I'm going to taste your stuff soon, but please have some of mine and give me your feedback. And the master blender at Buffalo Trace, Drew Mayville, I forever remember him saying, man, this is great. I need to up my game. That was the Del Monte moment <laughs> for us where I, I went and called my co-founder, head distiller, Kalle, and, and, you know, Kalle, put it on now. Put it on, like, all pots and pans full and let's, let's start doing it. Incredible. So that was the moment where you realized that you'd achieved the mission or not not quite? No, th- that, was a, <laughs> that was the moment where we knew we were at the first start, like the right starting gate right, okay. for, for the race. And I, I would say like, it still hasn't sort of fully come home, but I would say that we in Finland, we have this government controlled alcohol monopoly that sells you your alcohol. But when we released our first edition and we had a queue around the block, queuing up for the first edition in, in the Al- main Alco store. That's when, that was the second moment, which I knew, like, you know, something great is happening here. What I like is that you guys have retained a real playful approach yeah. to the, the business. Doesn't mean you're not serious, but there's yeah. a certain levity. There's a light touch around yeah. your <laughs> approach. I love the fact that you have your speakeasy as a community outreach. That was the tourism agency. This is going yeah. back oh, almost a decade also now, right? Yeah. You know, you're serious and passionate about what you do. How do you ensure that you keep that light touch? Because anyone can talk to you. They know that you yeah. you mean business and yet yeah. <laughs> you retain that good humor. Is that another tension? We spoke about other frictions earlier. Yeah. And even if you keep it, how do you make sure that people still know you have it? I mean, because it gets bigger and, and there's more middlemen and there's there's more of everything on the way. Does it go back to being one of those whiskey brands where, you know, it, it's serious and, you know, it's all about uh, the age and the pedigree and you mm. know, all, all of that and seriousness? Or are you willing and able to engage people and, and events and situations where things are not so serious? And maybe the whiskey is not the center stage, but it's a great elevator of whatever is going on. So so we wanna don't want to be too flippant about it because it's a strong new taste profile that we're running through. But at the same time, we don't want to sink into that old style whiskey market where drinkers have chosen their favorite brand like 30 years ago and, and they're not going to switch. <laughs> yeah. I, we need a bit more exploration in people's minds and definitely comes back into that. I tend to ask if we are lucky enough to speak to people in the food and beverage space about how 
what's their ideal way of consuming their own product or an idealized way. Yeah. And with whiskey, you know, you can very much say the wrong thing if you talk to somebody who's yeah. a single malt and you say, oh, I prefer to have a single ice cube and then they'll sort of look at you like you've said something. <laughs> does it matter? Are you bothered if you see somebody slugging a load of Coca-Cola into it? Does that bother you? Or do you just say, look, it's a market for everybody? As long as it's Coke Zero, it's, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but do you have a, if, if someone said to you, look, if I'm going to try yeah. this for the first time, yeah. how do I maximize my yeah. chance of getting the full experience? It's a fair question. And, and it comes down to the fact that you don't want to overrule people's preferences because then you're getting in the way of that fun. Yeah. You're, you're making it too dogmatic. But at the same time, you can't just leave people out floating. Like you have to give some cues of what are the perfect ways to enjoy this. So for instance, for our Gouda Malt, where we just got three stars and great taste awards. But for that, I just drink it with cherry soda. It's a bit sinful, but it's a, <laughs> it's a great, I heard this term, patio pounder. So you go out to the <laughs> patio and you just start pounding away. It's such a good drink. And then, you know, our Finnish older wood smoke rye, I would always have in a, in a whiskey sour. And then our peat smoke meat. So it's kind of like moods, occasions kind of thing. And we're not really fussy. Like if somebody comes to us in, in a show and says, you know, I just pour it down a ton of ice or, or do the Coke thing, whatever floats your boat. Everyone's <laughs> welcome to the party. Yes, exactly. It's funny, we spoke to Annabelle from Nick Nian on this program. Yeah. And again, she talked about how she was frustrated with some of that fustiness of the Scotch market. And the idea that there was this consumer, he was older, he it was a he, yeah. and it was a bit humorless and, and, and overly serious. And her approach was that there's an undiscovered consumer. Do you guys visualize a consumer? Do you have a yeah. demography in mind? Or do you, again, is that part of the discipline? Is that you never know who they are, where they yeah. are, what, how old they are, what they look like, what they do. How do you visualize that consumer? So we don't really like to talk about demographics. I'm sure there's marketing people who might either agree or disagree about this. We are a bit closer to the sh personas. So we do visualize those personas who might consume our things, but we also think that people are not monolithic entities either in one given time, let alone their lifetimes. So they are they drink themselves at their home alone or with guests. They go out, they're in a bar, they gift something, and different things might come into play like this. So we have, I would say, we orient more towards the occasion. Mm. When and why are you having a drink rather than the persona? And we don't care if you're black, white, 20, 70, anywhere in the in the, in the great space of genders whatever like we're totally okay with that and uh, five years later on you might ask me and and you know no actually it was this guy <laughs> <laughs> but, but but right now we have to be both determined and we have to set a direction but we also have to be open to them Question. Well, precisely. And on that longer term time horizon, what's next? What are you most excited about, you and your colleagues? I, I always ask founders on this program about that challenge of the detail. You've got to yeah. be on it for tomorrow because you've yeah. got to be on top of the P&L. But then you do, I, someone's going to say, well, look, in 10 years, where's this yeah. brand going to be? How do you calibrate that time horizon? It's a good question, especially with whiskey, which is kind of a generational project just because of, of its nature. It's not enough to get one barrel across the three-year border and start calling it whiskey and then sell out. You have to build your stock. It's kind of like a tip of an iceberg and the part of the iceberg that's under the water. So your stock has to lie down there and 
contain all these variants and taste and time profiles where you can then consistently bring out something of quality. And I think now we're getting there. And now in the, in the mid-September time, about in the UK, we're going to release our full core series of whiskies with uh, like a rye malt one, a couple of smoky ones, and a sweeter one, a Rosso cask. And you're hopefully going to see us around events and shows here. And I think this marks a time where we can now start getting a proper idea of how the market works and actually get some product out there for the whiskey side. And five years hence, yeah, I hope I still can say that this is a generational business for us because whiskey is not built overnight. And Isokura Finland will be solidly on the whiskey map with Finnish rye whiskey. That was Mikke Lippiainen, the co-founder of Kora. You can learn more about the brand, including some exciting new additions to their rye whiskey range, by heading to koradistillery.com. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Elisa Koivuma is the founder and CEO of Seiz Company, a household cleaning products and natural cosmetics brand based in Finland. Elisa started the brand after moving back home from Japan, where she and her family had lived for five years. It was during this time that Japan had suffered the Fukushima nuclear disaster, and Elisa found herself worrying about the ingredients in the products she and her family were using every day. Like many entrepreneurs, Sei's company was born from her frustration with not being able to find the products she was looking for, products created without artificial ingredients or synthetic fragrances. Elisa caught up with our Laura Kramer and began by telling Laura the meaning behind the name of the brand. Ces stands for serene. It's an old Finnish word and we use it when we talk about sea that is very calm. So we say sea is ces in Finland. But everything started when my family and I moved back to Finland from Japan, where we lived five years. And unfortunately, we experienced also the Fukushima nuclear disaster. And after that, I started to think about the chemicals that we have at our home and how our three children were exposed to chemicals. And then when we moved back, I started to search a product line in Finland that would be good for people, good for environment, beautifully designed and made in Finland and scented without artificial fragrances, so with uh, essential oils only. But I couldn't find a product like that, so I decided to create one myself. From the very beginning, I wanted those little moments that we often repeat in our daily lives, but like a routines, but we don't pay attention to, to become a bit better. So by washing hands or hair with the products that has essential oils, I think it gives the user a small aromatherapic moment at the same time. And our product development always starts with thinking what essential oils we would like to be in this product, how it affects the person's mind, and what is the situation that the product will be used so that it will help. Now, the development of the products tailored specifically for the hospitality sector. What motivated you to enter this market? The first idea was the bigger environmental impact. 
when it comes to choosing a, a soap or a shampoo, it's very easy to be eco-friendly or make the eco-friendly decision in a world that there is always things that pollute. So let's say for the hand soap, it's an easy decision, if you know what I mean. So it's something that we should all choose. We should all uh, choose from the natural perspective. We should use only like biodegradable and eco-friendly products. So I think that for the hotels or restaurants or companies who use a lot of soap, that would be very easy step for them to be more eco-friendly. So because they they can't be eco-friendly in, in all the things, but with the hand soap or shampoo, you can very easily. So I thought that we will get the bigger impact by starting also selling products for hotels and restaurants. How did your personal experience in Japan influence the ethos and the guiding principles behind the brand? My years in Japan taught me peace. <laughs> It's the uh, aesthetics and how the uh, small details can have a huge impact. They are very good in details in Japan. And says philosophy includes serenity, I think, that comes partly from Japan and creating a sense of well-being, like that you feel good, everything is calm, serene, those kind of details also. The brand also does very well in Japan. What challenges did you face when entering foreign markets? The biggest difference in Japan market compared to Finland is the pace. In Japan, things are done very slowly or calmly and always with the focus on quality. They think things through very carefully and consider every detail very carefully. Like, for example, sometimes I've noticed that I have responded to an email too quickly and it may have seemed a bit aggressive <laughs> for them. So it's, it's funny how the pace is so different. Oh, wow. That's, I never thought about even responding to an email too quickly. Yes. Whereas here, I feel like if I've left it too long, it looks like I'm yeah. lazy. Exactly. Or entering a shop in Japan as a customer also. If you just go there too fast, it's not okay. They will forgive you everything since you're a foreigner. But still, it's, uh, there's a lot to learn. What about the customer preferences there? They want everything to be very small. So in Japan, some sales products comes in smaller bottles, for example. And fun or funny thing about word vegan in our products might not to be always a good thing for them. Some of the customers might think that this product, like let's say vegan dishwash, it won't work. So it, it's not... Uh, as effective? Yes, yes, as it could be. And for customers in Finland, they expect products to be vegan and biodegradable. And the scents are also one thing that are, sets the Nordic countries apart from Asia. And in Japan, scents are more used more intensively. And things almost always have a scent in Japan. And sales products, they do have a lot of essential oils in them. But sometimes in Japan, we even hear that, that the scent could be even stronger. So... They have more and longer history with the essential oils that we have in Nordic countries. How many markets are you in? Obviously, Finland, Japan. 
Where else can we find the products? We have a small shops worldwide in US, in Canada, in a lot of our European countries. But now we are entering to UK market, which is quite, I wouldn't say difficult, but more complicated after Brexit. But there has been, a, I always think that if when there is a complicated things, then it's a good sign to continue. So it's always a sign for me that this is maybe the point where other people or companies, they will give up. But it's a good sign for me to learn more and, and then continue. The products are ready to go so so soon. And so with being in these different markets, how do you navigate building trust with partners internationally? Because as you've already mentioned, cultural differences play a huge role. From the beginning, I made a decision not to cut corners so that there will be nothing to hide. And this has also shown that CS could be trusted from the start. So when I can disclose all the ingredients or manufacturing process or product origins or the reasons behind the decisions, I think it's been easy to build trust. If you have nothing to hide, if everything is good and clear for you, for the uh, customer, for the environment, then I think it's not easy to build the trust, but it's possible. What's next then? We can look forward to seeing you in the UK, but what's coming up for the brand? What What are you most excited about? Well, big thing now in this uh, fall is our partnership with Finnair, so national airline company Finland. We've created what we call Scent Journey for them. So when the Finnair business class customer visits the lounge, they are created with the fragrance developed by us, Mercedes, which continues with our hand soaps and uh, shampoos and sauna uh, products and showers in, in Helsinki, Helsinki airport lounges. And after that, they board on a airplane where the same scent experience continues in the restrooms. That was Elisa Koivoma, founder and CEO of Say's Company. You can learn more by heading to sayscompany.fi. That's it for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back at the same time next week. Do look out for Eureka coming to you on Friday. The programme was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Tamsin Howard. You can listen again and find out more about the show at monocle.com. That's where you can subscribe to Monocle magazine and read more about better businesses every month. To contact the team, get in touch with Laura. You can email her on lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.